Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. I'm the host, and we are exploring the power of psychedelics and spirituality. And we are looking at particularly the influence of uh, Indigenous ways of being today on our understanding of how we're going to land this psychedelic revolution. And today's guest is an unbelievable author, uh, speaker, teacher. Um, uh, I've just been absolutely amazed at the, the breadth of knowledge and insight from Dr. Narsha Narvaez. She is a PhD from the Minnesota um, University of Minnesota. She's a professor at the Department of Psychology at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, she's the author and edit editor of uh, dozens of books, chapters, and articles. Her book, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality, Evolution, Culture, and Wisdom, won the 2015 William James Book Award from the American Psychological Association and from the American Education Research Association's Moral Development and Education, SIG. So Dr. Narvaez's uh, current research is exploring how early life experiences influence society, societal culture and moral character in children and adults. And her real passion, which is what makes me so excited today, is she's just written a book called Restoring the Kinship Worldview. And I'm just into it right now. Indigenous Voices, Introducing 28 Precepts for Rebalancing Life on planet Earth. Welcome to Unveiled, uh, Dr. Uh, Darsha Narvaez. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on our podcast today. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, so this is going to be a, a fun conversation. Uh, I'm really excited. And I, I want to just take our time today. I, I don't want to be in a rush because I think there's lots, uh, lots of things, lots of intersections that we can explore. But let's first start with you. Tell me a little bit about how... Um, because there, there's a story of how your research landed into this latest book. Uh, you know, you were, you were, your passion, at least your research has been on what makes the best thriving for children and therefore society, right? That's kind of how you came into it as a, as a psychologist, as a researcher. So tell me about your journey, how that psychological research dropped you into this indigenous way of being as really the place that you're landing right now. Well, my PhD in educational psychology was my uh, seventh career, really. <laughs> so I've had a, a nice wandering lifestyle and seeking and lots of different interests. I was a music major in college, for example, uh, organ, pipe organ, and church musician and, and okay, such. Pipe organ. That is so cool. <laughs> I, I'm like, hold on a minute. You can't just throw that down and just say, oh, I'll just let that one go. That is such a cool, what a beautiful background. You played the pipe organ and that's part of your passion. Oh, I just, I had, I had to just, I had to stop there. That's really cool. Yeah. J.S. Bach. I really got into him in college. Mm. So I really uh, just became a major uh, unexpectedly. Uh, yeah. So I have uh, followed the muse, I suppose. Mm. Uh, and if you're uh, Christian, the Holy Spirit or uh, the great mystery in my life and um, mm. the PhD um, came, well, it was focused on moral development. So I was because from a young age, I, I was just astounded with the injustice of the world. So uh, my earliest memories of uh, a child getting beaten up and uh, it seemed to be my fault and uh, that didn't seem right. And spent half my childhood in uh, outside the country, the United States, uh, leave, leaving for a year and then coming back for two and leaving for a year and could not understand how kids my age 
would be in these other countries on the street corner selling gum. They weren't in school. They didn't have good clothes on, no shoes. And then coming back to the States and seeing the <clears throat> overabundance and the wastefulness, carelessness, uh, and uh, couldn't understand that. So that ethical concerns, morality has been a kind of central to mm. my life in a way, but I had a lot of interests like music. <laughs> so it took me a while to get back to moral development. And that's where I um, was trained in at University of Minnesota. And the focus then was on, you know, cognition, reasoning and thinking and, and you know, the Western view, the enlightenment view mm. that if you just think the right way, and then apply your will to whatever that good decision was, then you're a moral person. You intended mm -hmm. something good and maybe it didn't come out, but I, your intention mattered, your thought, your will. <clears throat> so in a, in a, I, I was doing work in that area for a while. And then because I was reading widely, I discovered anthropology, ethnography, I discovered neuroscience. I discovered that attachment that I was told in graduate school was, you know, an internal working model, that cognition again, right? It's all in your head, was actually engraving your brain. Your early experience with your, your caregivers is actually shaping how your brain works and your, you know, long-term adult capacities. It's like, what? And then the anthropologist showing us uh, what we call the evolved nest, all over the world, same kind of practices to raise a young, uh, the young, uh, our species has a particular nest, you know, and so then I <clears throat> started to, uh, well, I, and then they found the neuroscience and Alan Shore's work pointing out how early experiences does actually shape the brain and, and various things, uh, we can say more about it, but uh, so I wrote a, a book proposal for W.W. W. Norton, the neurobiology book, and they accepted it. And um, when I was writing that book, uh, it had a mind of its own. <laughs> it wasn't going to just be about moral development and neuroscience. It turned out to lead me to indigenous wisdom. How are we going to get back to our species normality, our species uh, goodness, really? Uh, how do we get back? Well, <laughs> we provide the nest to the young and the practices of indigenous communities all over the world, which are very oriented to being members of the earth community. And then we can get back to who we are uh, as a member, a, a co-member, a partner of the bio community, rather than the dominator and, you know, the superior being on the earth. All those crazy ideas that have really got enhanced in the last 500 years. Wow, that's uh, that's quite a quite a journey. I I, I want to pick up the thread of uh, of the evolved nest, um, but I think this is an appropriate time for us to even just you, you know you mentioned kind of the fact that your research brought you into this concept of the evolved nest, and that you know a, as you began to study what what makes children thrive and what then contributes to you know human and culture thriving and what i think what you what you argued is to say actually those precepts that we can look at scientifically and test and we can kind of see what works those are the same ones that indigenous communities the world over has valued for not just their raising of their young but how they connect with plant based wisdom or place based wisdom or animism or you know all of those things you began to see a parallel and connection with 
Uh, and I think that's kind of the eureka aha moment in your work is it didn't just, it didn't just stay in the field of, you know, uh, um, a moral psychology, but it began to become this all encompassing concept. And you began to realize that there's this idea of a worldview. Right. And this is, uh, you know, you can do lots of worldview studies and, and, and understand what that means. But it's just you, you, you at least you frame it in the book in, in your in your reclaiming uh, a kinship worldview is there's only two paradigms. You know, there's this there's the dominator paradigm and then there's the kinship paradigm. And there's not really any other framework and all religions can fit into probably the dominant paradigm. That's just the way that's been involved. But there's another ancient, a more ancient way of being that we see in cultures all around the planet. And they're alive still now. And I think for me, my, my fascination with your work, Darsha, is I've been trying to make sense of a whole bunch of personal experiences I've had. And I don't know how to fit all these puzzles together, right? I've got this string that I've got, and we call it, you know, a psychedelic renaissance. I'm seeing people healed. I'm seeing people, you know, changed. But then I've got this 15-year history in my own life of, of starting and, and, and being part of a nonprofit called Run for Water, and we worked in Ethiopia. And I would do four or five trips a year to these rural communities in Ethiopia, empowering and working with small indigenous groups to build resilience. And I, what I realized is that they don't need resilience. They needed water, but they were teaching me about the nest. They were teaching me about connection. And this is what was lost in the culture. I came back to Canada and I realized, oh, everyone in my, in my world is, is full of anxiety, depression, mental health crisis. People are disconnected. Then I read this book called Lost, uh, Lost Connections by Johan Hari, where he argues that the epidemic of S the rise of SSRIs and anti-anxiety medication that's happened in the last 30 years is a, a, a hundred percent contributed to disconnection. We have people in our life that maybe we have a beer with or watch a hockey game with, but no one to share the intimacy of our life. Our families are fragmented. Our marriages are falling apart. We no longer go to church. We no longer allow religion to provide that place of connection for us. And our cultures are lost and broken and we're destroying our planet because we're disconnected. And then I discover your work and I go, oh my goodness, she's beginning to answer these threads that I'm beginning to see. So you can start to see my level of excitement about why your work has been so pivotal for me in bringing the, the threads of psychedelics, mental health healing, connection, group work, and this concept of the evolved nest or reattaching adults in, in, a, in a really uh, intentional way. So that gives me, you know, it gives you a little bit of my passion for why, how I come to your work, because I think you're answering a lot of questions that a lot of people are, are raising right now. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. Your background and your experiences, really. Yeah, I think we're a lot of people are coming to this realization that uh, what's happening now is not working, and the interest in indigenous perspectives in general are, are really uh, advancing. So I'm I'm happy to mm. be a part of that movement. <laughs> well, let let's start kind of. That's a nice little intro. But let's start with this question of um, 
what place are you coming from? What are the lands and the peoples and, and uh, uh, the peoples that where you kind of find yourself situated? I, I'm coming from the lands of the, the Matsqui and uh, Samath First Nations people. They're the people of the Stolo Nation. The Stolo people are the keepers of the river. They've been uh, the keepers for thousands of years of the waterways of the Fraser River, which really feeds all of the Pacific Northwest. And uh, so it's these peoples on whose land that I live and breathe and play. And, uh, and these are the people who I owe the, a debt of gratitude for keeping these medicines, these sacred plant medicines and these rituals and these ceremonies, keeping them alive so that we can now, in essence, rediscover them. I didn't, you know, we, we, in the West, we come and we think, oh, we discovered psychedelics. No, no, no. Altered state work, trance work, that's as old as human history. And we're going to get into that today. But this is just the new Western way of trying to get into this work. So what lands do you come from, Darsha? Well, at Notre Dame, we are on the lands of the Pokagon band of the Potawatomi. And, uh, Part of the reason they were allowed to stay and not pushed out like other groups like the Miami who used to be here is because they uh, that band uh, became Catholic. And so they pleaded and were allowed to stay in the area, which is kind of. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, and there's there's a giving up, but a, you know almost like a concession, uh, but also an, a brilliance in in trying to survive, right? I mean, I it's yeah. uh, Gabor Mate doesn't you know when he when he talks about trauma, he says doesn't don't ask why people did X Y and Z, ask why the pain, what was the trauma that they first began this process of whatever, right? So I think that applies here too. Well, thank you for giving us that context. Yeah. Uh, let's move into your evolved nest concept. I think that's a really brilliant place to start. Can you kind of uh, explain it and uh, you know and what what your factors are that go into uh, framing out how babies and then you know humans thrive best? Right. Well, every every animal has a nest, and we do too. And ours is uh, part of the social mammalian line. Uh, many characteristics, though, are uh, even older than that. The social mammals uh, emerged maybe 30, 40, 50 million years ago. But some of the characteristics are even, uh, you know, uh, hundreds of millions of years old. So uh, we are part of the tree of life. And our uh, set of, of conditions or components, I guess we call them for the evolved nest, are just rooted in who we are as animals and as social mammals. Uh, so what we, and I should say that every nest is uh, geared, has been designed by evolution, quote unquote, uh, to optimize normal development. So it's designed to match up with the maturational needs of that young, the offspring. So our nest includes soothing perinatal experiences. So that's uh, a, a soothing gestation the mother is supported and feels uh, welcomed. The baby's welcomed by the community. The mother's welcomed by the community. So the biochemistry of mom's body is promoting growth rather than uh, stress and trauma. Uh, and that birth then is soothing as well. So there's no uh, interference with timing. Uh, there's no painful procedures. There's no separation of mom and baby. There's no infant circumcision, uh, all the things that kind of put you on a different trajectory as baby, uh, because everything's imprinting that child. We're born uh, 
really immature. We look like fetuses of other animals till about 18 months of age uh, in various ways. Uh, and so a lot of the brain, only 25% of the brain adult volume is apparent at birth, full-term birth, and most babies aren't born at full-term anymore. That was used to be 40 to 42 weeks. And every baby stays in the womb a little bit different length of time. They vary by about 55 days how long they stay in the womb. So uh, due dates are guesses. <clears throat> um, and so there's a lot that happens after birth. And so every experience, anything intense or uh, long uh, duration or routine are going to really imprint what that baby takes forward. And if things don't happen properly, the pruning of the brain uh, that occurs at various points is going to then leave out the things that were supposed to have been there if the child was not nested. So um, after soothing perinatal experiences, then there's breastfeeding. Uh, and breastfeeding is just this magical elixir. It's just astounding. The mom's breasts are a science laboratory creating the right kind of milk for that baby at that moment. So it's important to actually breastfeed and not just bottle feed breast milk uh, because the uh, breasts are uh, getting uh, information from the baby's saliva about what to produce, more fat or uh, whether it's a boy or a girl, uh, if there's an infectious agent in the region, they produce an antibody. And uh, it is uh, it varies by time of day. So early morning milk is energizing and night milk, which is really important uh, to feed the baby all night, uh, is providing sleep inducing ingredients and brain building ingredients. So uh, our species, it's always now gonna be a shock. How long should people be breastfed? Well, it should be at least four years, four to six years before you completely stop. So most of the time at the end, it's the evening night milk. Um, you know, I, I got to just make a comment on that because because it's uh, I, it's such a you know, we, we see kind of parodies of that in social media or, uh, you know, I've seen movies where, you know, a four year old child comes up to it's a comedy or something and comes up to the mom and asks her for a drink, you know, and, and it's it's seen by the from the filmmakers perspective as absurd, as hilarious, as bizarre. Right. And we would kind of mock that. But I think what you're saying is, why are we mocking that? Why, why is that a, a, a bizarre concept? This should be the norm that young children stay attached to their mother as long as possible to build all this neurobiology, the circuitry that's needed for proper attachment, proper growth, particularly if we realize that these early years as we, we you know, the research is coming out so big on this is that you are setting them up for a trajectory and if you even one degree off, right, we know this from the ACE study, right, early adverse childhood experiences study, you can go right now, go do the ACE 10, 10 questions, right? And we know predictor of longitude disease. We know we, we know thousand times more likely to have heart disease, cancer, all the other things by what happens in the first years of a person's life. That's that ACE study to me changed my thinking. It moved away from this but kind of a, a shame-based, that person made a bad decision. They're an alcoholic or they're doing this or they can't keep relationships or they have five, they've had five marriages. And I'm like, all of that study and your work is beginning to give me a sense of compassion for how 
people marred in early life do not barely stand a chance of finding connection later in life unless we re-nest them, right? We need to reattach adults into these safe ways again. Uh, anyways, I had to just stop and comment on that breastfeeding thing because I think people just kind of laugh at that. And you're saying, no, 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 let's go this way. Let's go back to more attachment-based uh, uh, frameworks than not less. So I, I think that's just a brilliant line you said there. Oh, good. <laughs> well, it's blowing people's minds, you know. <laughs> so uh, we, um, so breastfeeding then is really critical, like you're saying, to good health long-term. Now in our ancestral environment, it, and we see this around the world in nomadic foragers. So nomadic foragers are where we spent 95 to 99% of our history as a human uh, genus or species, depending on how you're gonna slice it up. Uh, and in those communities, it's not always the mother that's breastfeeding. So it can be another mother, it can be grandmother, even dads will uh, let the baby suckle uh, just to comfort. So breast, uh, the, being at the breast is what's used to, to comfort the child, the baby, mm. uh, immediately. And anybody around, if the mom's not around, or someone will just do that, right? So mm. again, that, it kind of blows your mind too, mm. right? <laughs> But, but I, as an anthropologist, you're lucky in that in, in you kind of get to say, this is what happens, not this is what, you know, it, it's just, it, it is what is. This is what helps the human species thrive. So if you don't want to do that, that's up to you. I'm just telling you, these are the facts of how humans thrive. You know, longitudinally, we can now do those studies. And so you're just saying, yeah, breastfeed as long as possible. Have a group of people around this child that's safe, uh, that, uh, you know, that there's no adverse experiences in this early developmental life, that it should be just uh, this responsive relationships you talked about. You talk about self-directed social play. My goodness, we have four daughters. And I remember my wife early on said, we're going to put them in one activity. That's it not five. You want to dance and do soccer and that. She's like, you're doing one thing and that's it. And after that, it's self-directed play. And you're going to, we lived on a farm and it was go outside and play. Now we're lucky. We're privileged. We get access to that kind of space. I don't live in an apartment, you know? And so our, the, the urbanization that's happened, uh, it forces kids to disconnect from nature, right? They're up in a seven story, 17 story building. You're, you're disconnected with others. And now you're only in, you know, social media, you're on your phone, you know, four-year-olds playing things on their phone. That's kind of how we teach them to play. So I, I don't know. I just, I can see all of the, you know, we're asking why, why are we so anxious, right? Why are half of, you know, in Canada, 40% of Canadians will be diagnosed with a mental health condition by the time they're 40, 40%. That is an, that's an epidemic. And we're like, why is that happening? It's the reasons you're telling us. These, we are anxious because we have not been properly connected and attached in our society. We don't have safe spaces. We haven't been nurtured properly. And we have a generation of people lost that way. And so that's kind of, for me, brings up, well, what do we do now? How do we re-nest people, right? And along comes indigenous ways of knowing and being, and along comes plant medicine. And that's where this, for me, the intersection begins to say, hmm, there's something unique here about the rise of plant medicine at this time from indigenous cultures that we need in this time in history. 
Um, I've heard you on some psychedelic podcasts. You were beautiful. My friend James uh, had you had a group of you on and it was a beautiful uh, podcast. And I'm going to do some links to the, that podcast. But Ken, why do you think there's an interest in your work connecting in with psychedelic work right now? Have oh, you tried well, to piece that together? I haven't thought about that, but I think it's uh, in part the the connection issue, right? That we are part of the earth community and plants have a lot of wisdom, just like animals do. And we need to learn from them. And that's what uh, indigenous peoples have done all through their, our history, our uh, prehistory mostly. Uh, and so we're kind of awakening to that, that we can sit and, and talk to a tree or uh, ask a plant for permission to pick them, which is the honorable harvest way of uh, relating to animals and plants, not just willy-nilly go do what you want uh, as if everything's dead out there, right? No, it's a sentient place. Mm. Everything's alive. Mm. They're agents. They have purpose too. Mm. How are we to think that we, we are superior and that we're the ones? That's just, you know, the last few hundred years that really uh, pushed us in that direction, the colonization mm. of our minds and Hmm. And the disregard of our bodies and of nature and women, uh, patriarchy yeah. has taken over. And the left brain stuff, just like the big ego consciousness of the of the uh, that the left, uh, the, while the Western Enlightenment view is emphasized, you know, degrading the body, nature, women, uh, anything except hierarchy of males at the top, white males in particular. Uh, and the ego consciousness is all about, you know, maintaining oh me, I have, hmm. I have to be better and. And and what happened that we we've uh, moved into that we've fallen into that uh, orientation because we've underdeveloped the right hemisphere, which is scheduled to develop more rapidly in early life. In those first years, it's developing all, under nested conditions. It's developing all sorts of skills and understanding of interacting with others, but also receptive intelligence to the natural world, being able to Ooh. pick up on the communications of the the winds and the birds and the animals mm. and paying it this big diffuse attention that you would normally have as a child who's nested mm. out in the natural world. You develop this normally and you're so mm. smart, like every animal is so smart, mm. right? Um, and we've lost so much by putting people inside walls and mm. kids and babies inside carriers and cribs and play pens oh my god that's mm. undermining their development in so many ways and then we torture them with sleep training and making them sleep alone and oh you've now changed their trajectory as you say towards ill-being mm. rather than wellness and well-being yeah and connection you know i think that's uh, mm. so much of at the heart of the indigenous worldview is right. an interconnectedness of all things, right? A connection with our interior space, our connection with the kinship around us, our family, our neighbors, our, you know, our ancestors even, and a connection with the wider worldview, nature, but also a connection with the spiritual reality of that there's a there's a sense that we there's something larger than us, that we're not just alone individuals trying to, you know, gain as much as possible, letting the ego go, you know. I think your mention of the ego is the thing that I find so interesting about psychedelics, right? So the work of, uh, of people at like uh, Dr. Robin Cartwright Harris, looking at the, the 
fMRIs of brains when they're in these trance-like states, these psychedelic states. And what happens is the default mode network, that ego part of our brain begins to dissolve and go offline. And we access different part of ourself. This, not the ego self, but a connected self. And that you get access to different wisdom in those moments. And it's childlike is what it is. You open your book, and I, I'd love for you to read it if you have it there, Restoring the Kinship Worldview. In your chapter, at least in the audio version, you are reading a passage from an indigenous lady. I think she's from an Okanagan out here in British Columbia, an Okanagan uh, First Na Nations community. I think it's from the 1800s. You read a story. This is wisdom. This is, you know, hundreds of year old wisdom about a mother, a grandmother sending her children out into the forest to discover spiritual entities that she's encouraging them to make friends with. That's how you decide to open this book. And I was like, boom, blow me away. This is because can you read that? Because I just yeah. thought that was gutsy. I love it. <clears throat> yes, I'm happy to do so. Uh, this chapter number one is called Recognition of Spiritual Energies in Nature. And the quote is from Morning Dove, uh, who lived from 1884 to 1936. She says, Indians had a staunch belief that the creator made the world according to a divine plan that gave power from the animal world to our ancestors and now to us. Children at the early age of six or seven were continually sent out each night to hunt for a guardian spirit. Both boys and girls were obliged to undertake this search. As children grew older, they were sent a little farther away each night until they graduated from short to long distances. When the teacher or parents gave them something special to take along on these night journeys, uh, period. The article might be a small piece of fur from the medicine bag of a shaman or a bone from some animal. The hope was that the child would receive a vision of the animal spirit associated with the entrusted skin or bone. The child was always instructed never to run away from any animal form or apparition that chose to speak to him or her while on these expeditions hunting for knowledge. A child might find these supernatural powers almost any place, water, cliffs, forest, mountains, remains of lightning struck trees, animal carcasses, old campfires, or a sacred sweat lodge. The spirits were supposed to appear when they were impressed by the dedication and purity of the persistent seeker. The spirit's appearance came to a child in a vision, in the form of an animal or an object that spoke about how the spirit would help with future life, especially when needed during times of distress. It sang its spiritual song for the child to memorize and use when calling upon the spirit guardian as an adult. Such a vision did not always come to a child while awake. Sometimes it came while the child was asleep beside the token he or she had been given. It was thus a natural necessity that parents should send their children out into the night to hunt for this secret knowledge to make themselves great and powerful. This training, for all its hardships, continued until puberty when particularly strenuous work was added to the regime to give the child energy and stamina for a long life. There were many things that we practiced that the priests had no knowledge of. People still believed in the old ways and no one was criticized for sending their children out alone. Instead, they were honored for doing so. During my childhood, people were just beginning to think that we were foolish. Later, Jesuit and white teachings won out. That last line, 
like it, like I come from that line, right? I come from a Christian line. My ancestors were all Christian and I was an ordained minister and um, I had to, I, I left that work because it was, it wasn't sustaining me. It wasn't producing life in me and my family. Right. We experienced the, a loss of a stillborn child and the community that we were in that I was pastoring in didn't have the tools to be able to hold grief in that way. They just had little verses that give, give you and say, oh, maybe God has a plan or you're something's maybe there's sin in your life or some kind of weird response. Right. And so when I hear that last line that those teachings won out and this ancient way of of connecting young people to spiritual entities and allowing their imagination and their right brain to be active, which is so important in early development. Let them have imaginary friends. Let them have a spirit animal. Uh, this has been natural for millions of years in our indigenous communities. And it's only in our generations that we've really, you know, in the last hundred years, we've, we've kind of outlawed that, you know, it's just, it breaks my heart to hear that. Yeah. Very sad, uh, but we can return, right? That's yeah, the <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, let's, and that's what your book is about: is about restoring the natural kinship. And here, here you are starting with this one of the principles. You you have twenty eight in the book, uh, which is from a larger list of forty, actually. And I uh, I kind of want to like I want to tell a couple of the 40 here, because what, what you've done is you've got the dominant worldview, right? Rigid hierarchy versus non-hierarchical fear-based thoughts, behaviors, and in, in the dominant worldview versus like courage and fearless trust in the universe. So you kind of pair these different ones, but you, you've selected 28 out of the 40. Um, there's a couple that you left out and I want to ask about, uh, you know, did, and, and, and I'd love to, oh man, I started hearing four arrows, your co-author, and I'm like, I got to have four arrows on. He is just a beautiful mind and a yeah. incredible. So I'm going to, I'm going to put me in touch with him because he is just a, a, an incredible wise uh, thinker here, but you have number 15 and 16. Let me, let me just read these from your list and I can, I'll put a list uh, out in on the show notes here, but um, you know, one is, um, so now here's 15 and 16 regular use of alternative Alternate consciousness. That's one of the things that all indigenous cultures have in common. Number 16, a recognition of spiritual energies. You, you, you know, you talked about that. And then moving down even, even a bit more, because I want to bring the context to, to this is, you know, nature is benevolent. Yes. Um, but then you have this idea of learning and how we learn. And you have a concept here. Where was it here? Um, uh, human, oh, trance-based learning as natural and essential trance-based learning as natural and essential. Can you unpack that one? And because that is kind of a below your mind for the Western, you know, concept of how reason is dominant and you have to just read a book and that's how you learn. And you're like, nope, there is wisdom from our ancestors that they got from different means. Can you take me into that one? Well, I'll tell you what I know. And Four Arrows is the expert on this. So you'll have to have him. Uh, in the early years of life, children are kind of in a hypnotic state. They're in uh, deeper brain waves. Uh, and so they're learning uh, just from watching, observing, imitating, and they're establishing ways of being human, right? <clears throat> uh, so when you leave them alone, you're actually breaking all that, right? You're breaking the continuum of, of connection. And uh, what what you want to do for this um 
pre whatever hypnotic state. I used to uh, also be a teacher in, I was a music teacher for a few years, classroom, and then Spanish teacher. I taught adults, had my own business using super learning and super learning. I also taught middle school, but uh, super learning uh, is where you relax people into the alpha brainwave state, right? So that's the, the state in which you learn most easily and you relax them, then you present the new information with other music, and then you get up and you act it all out and dramatize it and play. Uh, and I did this with my middle schoolers too, uh, visualizing, uh, they're relaxing their body in Spanish, you know, and <laughs> it's a good way to learn the, the terms of the body. So uh, that alpha brainwave state is what um, is a self-hypnosis. You can use this uh, for yourself. Uh, every 90 minutes or so, you're shifting dominance of which brain uh, side of the brain. And you can tell by when you start to yawn or your eyes water or something. I discovered this when I was a student pastor. I, uh, <clears throat> I noticed, because I could schedule my own time, that every 90 minutes or so, things shifted. Uh, and I, I would be, you know, oh, all these creative ideas and brainstorming, blah, 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 and then I'd hit a wall and it's like, oh, I can't think of anything else, but filing. Oh, that sounds fun. <laughs> uh, and so I learned to shift with the brain's interests, right? So I always have a lot of documents open on my, on my computer. And when I'm into that editing mode, I'll go do some editing when I'm in the creative mode. Oh, I'm going to write a new essay or something, right? So I think we have the power to convince ourselves, to hypnotize ourselves, if we pay attention to how our body's working, but we've learned not to, right? Because when you're when you're mistreated as a child, unnested, you, you learn to shut down. Like you said before, uh, you learn to not pay attention to those urges to communicate because they don't work, right? So just shut up, uh, <laughs> body, <laughs> shut up and, uh, you know, coexist in however you can to survive. And so the heart is underdeveloped, the heart-mindedness, the the gut and intuition is kind of twisted uh, and you don't really have that deeper connected intuition developed as well, the right hemisphere stuff. So, but we can, we can get back to that. Right. Yeah. And I think the the, you know, again, I'm, 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 I want to place your work inside, you know, in a, in a field, at least in psychedelic research that I I'm, I'm kind of calling research and thinkers and therapists and doctors and psychiatrists that are getting into this world to like use your book and your work as is essence as a map they can lay over this work because i think what's happening is my, my my fear at least as a as a person trying to build community in the midst of this psychedelic renaissance um is that the, we're going to westernize this new substance right now we're going to you know patent a pill uh we're going to now say you have to be with a therapist for three hours take this drug in a clinic by yourself with one therapist, with a paid therapist, it's going to cost you 150 an hour to have someone pay attention to you. And then you're going to have three integration sessions with that therapist. And now you're fixed. And that is uh, a travesty. And not only is it a travesty, to me, it's careless and wrong because what I believe is going to happen, and I'm seeing this, is eight, nine months later, your nervous system has not been regulated. You are not attached to people. And now you are, in essence, twice as, as far back as you were because now you've tried the latest stuff. You've tried psilocybin and it didn't work. It didn't allow you to feel connected, right? It maybe opened you up 
it de-armored you for a bit, which is what it happens, right? You have this open neuroplastic, uh, you know, uh, opportunity at least for a month to six weeks after a high dose psilocybin session. But there was no way you weren't in a group. You weren't in an indigenous kind of uh, talking circle, which is how all of these medicines were given. Right. When you look at these shamanic cultures and Mexico and Peru and the ayahuasca circles and and you go into Africa and the iboga circles, all of them are family and, and kinship based how they do this work. And for me, this we need early on in this psychedelic renaissance to get on track that this is an indigenous practice and we need to understand how the indigenous people use plant medicines to heal people and it was always in an evolved nest it was always in community it was always with connection it wasn't one-on-one -on -one. and so i think your work is so crucial right now that people begin to read and understand that we have an opportunity to reattach people but we need to build communities, spiritually minded communities where this medicine can rest in, you know? So that's my heart as a, I don't know, as a psychedelic pastor, if you will. I want to create spiritual communities of connection, uh, the evolved nest for adults. That's what I want to do. Yeah. And, and doing that in a group, having trance experiences in the group is going to connect you then to the higher spiritual realm, right? You're not going to just be by yourself, you know, and and whatever, feeling okay for a while. The, in the group, you're going to experience communitas, right? That sense of of uh, being beyond yourself that we all need to experience regularly and to have that uh, awareness that's then continued through uh, constant group uh, interactions over time uh, to keep it alive, right? Uh, John Young, who wrote The Coyote's Guide <clears throat> and runs Eight Shields, talks about, uh, well, they, they spend a lot of time with the San Bushmen. And the San Bushmen are, uh, our genes come from them. They've been around for 150,000 to 200,000 years at least. And uh, we all share genes from them. So they're our ancestors. And they would visit them regularly to uh, understand how to thrive. How to bring about human uh, flourishing and uh, with the bio community, and they uh, John talks about how he asked, well, how often do you have uh, grief ceremonies or you know ceremonies? Oh, well, depends. Uh, sometimes every day, you know. And so this is the trance dancing and drumming and singing together, and and you need those things. That's one of our components of the evolved nest is routine, a regular healing practices so that you can let go of resentments, let go of your sadness, let go. And so you can be present. It's so important to be here now in this body and connected here and now with everything around you. And when we're resentful or sad or have all these unexpressed um, <clears throat> or uh, feelings, but also trauma that uh, that's keeping us shut down, we need these practices in order to let go and become back to our our fullness. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, part of what your book is doing is, is recognizing the power of ritual and ceremony that we've lost. Right. I mean, our ceremonies are like, you know, masculine. Uh, they are like, oh, we got, you know, 
NFL football on Sunday mornings. Like this is the, this is our routines. These are our, you know, they, that doesn't, that doesn't help us, you know, raise kids. Right. So like what we're, what you're calling, calling us back to is, is these ancient ways and practices of ritual uh, of following maybe the cycles of the season of connecting with nature, uh, of looking at the, you know, at, at the practices that indigenous people have done for millennia and saying they have, like, I had this one, Oh, you just reminded me of this beautiful story and I want to share it with you. It was, uh, we were working in Northern Ethiopia in a, in a province called Tigray, which is currently under, oh, it's a, it's in a civil war right now. And it's just really sad. I've got friends there and I, I think about them often and, um, and how, how horrible their existence is right now. But we were working in Northern Tigray and this one small community we were working with, with these women who wanted access to clean water, uh, climate change in the last 15 years has dried up their rivers. And so now they can't, you know, they have to walk 15 kilometers to get water up a mountain. And we were working with this community and, and in the evening they brought me to this beautiful tree. And it was this, uh, this tree was, uh, you know, I said, how old is the tree? And they said, it's, it's eternal. It's been here forever. And I was like, well, why it's not forever. And then, you know, so we started asking around and they're like, well, it's at least a thousand years old. And we know that we can, you know, trace this back. And so this sycamore tree that was a hundred meters wide from branch to branch, like the, the size of a football field. The, and I've got pictures of this. I mean, I'd never seen a tree like this. And what they did is they have a monthly ceremony where they come around. And if someone has had loss, a mother's lost a child, a, an old person has died, the family comes and lays their hands on the tree and they weep. And they have this, uh, they, I, I, I asked what they were doing and they said, no, this is a, this is, this is a, a healing tree. And I, what that means is this tree has seen the rise and falls of civilizations of, of communities and cultures, and it's still here. And it can hold the breadth of all of our pain. So we come to this tree and we lay our pain and grief. And I watched this woman just wail as she touched this tree for five, 10 minutes. And then she, you know, had something and she gave, you know, put something down about the tree. And I just watched that and went that, wow, what a ritual. Uh, uh, of, of acknowledging the sacredness of this tree, acknowledging that this tree is larger and older than, than them, and that they have a ritual, a place to be able to grieve together, to be able to say, my grief is worth crying about, and this tree can hold it. So I just, I'm thinking, we don't have anything like that. We are, you know, we don't even go to spiritual churches. We don't go to communities anymore. We don't go to anything. We're just these lost individuals with our pain and our sadness. And I think uh, I, I just read a book by a guy, uh, an author named Francis Weller, uh, on, on the power of grief and uh, and 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 kind of this idea of letting go. And he just really talks about the importance of ritual and getting into groups that you can practice grief, which is just a recognition. Uh, that I need, that there's been pain in my life that I've got to let go of. And we don't do that. And that's such a, a ritualistic practice that you mentioned that I think is so needed in our world right now. So thank you for reminding me of that, that story. A wonderful story. <laughs> yeah. So these uh, indigenous ways of knowing and being, can you highlight a couple more from your book um, that uh, you had 28, couple more that really connect with you and uh, you find that people are, are uh, you know, are, are connecting with as you as you write and speak on this yeah let me first say uh that the indigenous worldview is something that we can all adopt uh we can all take on this shift in perspective which i think is the true enlightenment 
uh, unlike the Western Enlightenment, which is kind of a de-enlightenment, de uh, to go into your head and think ego is all and, you know, power and control and all that. Um, but uh, indigenous wisdom is broader. It includes traditional ecological knowledge, which requires, uh, you know, long, uh, multi-generational, long-standing observation of the local community, the landscape of integration with the uh, needs of the animals and plants and, and a language that comes from the land of having lived there over generations. That's uh, traditional ecological knowledge, indigenous, indigenous wisdom, which we all who are not uh, raised indigenous need to support because those people who have that traditional knowledge plus the worldview, they're the ones that are keeping a lot of the biodiversity on the planet. Uh, they 80% of the biodiversity is in 20, the 20% of, of land that's governed by indigenous peoples. This is a UN report. Uh, so we have to understand that we are not talking about uh, taking up indigenous ways and taking over. That's colonization, right? That settler colonization where you want to just absorb and consume everything around you. And it's the Wetico virus of the, that uh, native people's Wendigo. Uh, that uh, they talk about, you know, anyone can be taken by this fever, this greedy fever that cannibalizes life, right? So we have to be careful. We're talking about the worldview. So uh, there are, uh, I think, um, I'm looking through the list here. I think um, in terms of, uh, we haven't, uh, I haven't heard a lot about what people prefer from the reading of the book, uh, which ones they, they like. Uh, Four Arrows has been doing more with indigenous worldview than I have over years. And I think uh, perhaps conflict resolution is one I really uh, I like um, to discuss because in the, in the Christianized, so-called Christian, it's not really Christian, <laughs> Protestant, I don't know what to call it, but it's the very harsh way of looking at um, people who did something wrong against the community and what do you do? You punish them somehow, right? The, the kind of inquisitorial, inquisitional um, way of treating people who fall outside the norms. Now, in the indigenous uh, uh, Native American perspective, it's an issue of disconnection. So the adolescent who's taken a, a bottle of whiskey from someone's house or stolen something, uh, for example, uh, what you do is you don't send them off or punish them or somehow you bring the circle together right the talking circle and you talk about how who was hurt and how um distrust i distrust teenagers now says somebody or i hate to go out in the neighborhood because i'm afraid someone's gonna whatever and you hear all that with the uh, the offender and then you try to get back into connection help help them realize that they're disconnected and the harm they've done and then figure out a way to reconnect. Yeah, that uh, restorative justice kind of model um, versus kind of a punitive uh, framework. And I think restorative justice has its roots in, um, you know, indigenous <laughs> frameworks of how to resolve conflict, right? And uh, I'm, uh, I, I come from a, um, a, an Anabaptist background, which is uh, kind of a, a Mennonite 
you know, my my ancestors came from actually Ukraine um, and in a, in a Mennonite colony there. And our background is trying to, you know, be nonviolent and saying, you know, and saying, you know what, we really want to restore broken relationships through connection and community, not through penal, you know, uh, but that might be a concept that we have in our background, but the way it gets lived out is communities that kick people out if they are, you know, immoral, right? I mean, I've, I've been in churches, I've seen this where a couple had premarital sex and were literally brought in front of the entire congregation, shamed by the pastor and then removed from membership. And so that is not the way of Jesus or connection or community at all. So, you know, there's, but I think this idea of restoration in healing of connection is, is really a framework that the indigenous worldview offers to us as a different way than, you know, our filling our, our institutions, uh, you know, with prisons, with, uh, with people. And, um, and we continually to victimize them again. And we create this cycle of violence uh, that uh, we won't stop until we create a, until we adopt a new, a better way of being in the world. And I, I think, you know, part of what you're saying <clears throat> By this book is that this is not an option like this isn't like hey here's a cute framework that you know darsha put together with four arrows and here's a neat idea you what you're arguing is way stronger than that you're saying a dominant worldview will destroy our planet and species will die and our planet will die and we will die that's where we're heading and you're saying there is another way of being that the indigenous people have kept alive that we have bracketed outlawed shamed you know, Christianized, colonized, and you're saying we don't have to become indigenous. That's another form of colonization, but there's a way of being in the world that we can draw from that is more aligned with this uh, place-based way uh, of knowledge. Uh, is that, am I kind of tracking what your argument is here? Yes. Very good. Yes. And part of the, the there's different assumptions about the world. So the worldview is kind of that what's uh, underlying your philosophy of life and what you think is a good thing to do and what good people are. It's, it's how we perceive our connections to the spiritual world, to other people, to the natural world. And it just flavors everything about who you are. Now, one of the key aspects of indigenous perspective is understanding that everything is sentient, everything has agency, and that includes children. So you don't want to interfere with the child's development. You can hurt them if you if you uh, coerce them. So there's no coercion. I mean, unless there's some extreme thing like they're rolling in the fire or something. Uh, but typically there's no, you don't assume that you know better. You trust the inner moral compass of that child, understanding that it takes a while to get, you know, acculturated and culturated, socialized, but you let them learn by immersion and uh, emulation and imitation and just they need to be in the community doing things with you, not isolated, uh, alone or with kids of their own age. That's not helpful either. They need to be in the multi-age community. So this is part of the village of care that we all need. We all need mentors throughout life. Right. So we have to understand that this nestedness is, you know, it's broader. It's the free play. It's the nature connection that we immersion and connection every day, all the time, ceremony, right? That you're, uh, you're every time you take a drink of water, you're grateful 
to the water and understand that it's a living entity that's supporting you. The air is supporting you every moment. You can be thankful and uh, be great, uh, uh, show gratitude to everything that you are experiencing uh, and being respectful. So you're in the web of life now, right? You're never alone, but we, we lose that. The, the left brain gets off in its little ivory tower and thinks it knows everything, but it's isolated and has to be superior, <laughs> right? Come back down. Come back to earth. Here you are in the body now, your senses now. What do you see? What do you smell? What do you feel? Uh, and bring yourself back there uh, and learn to calm yourself down when, when things get triggered, right? And learn to connect. So my students and I in my classes, uh, <clears throat> I taught them folk song games because I was a music teacher. And that would, so things like hunting, we will go, hunting, we will go, we'll catch a little fox and put him in a box and then we'll let him go. And everyone's, you know, trying not to get caught and the others are holding on to, and you touching people, you're laughing, you're moving, you're singing, you're looking in the eye, all that stuff's growing the right hemisphere. The right brain is growing uh, when you have to be in the present moment, face to face, right, with others. And, and you can get back to that sense of empathy of being connected, right? And, and enjoying life. That's part of our moral sense, according to Darwin. It's empathy, social pleasure, caring about the opinion of others, habit control. Those are things he identified through the tree of life that I've noted have diminished in the United States. But we got less of all that in recent decades, in part because we have been unnesting kids more uh, degrading the nest more and more over the last decades and so uh children and adults who are so anxious they can't let their kids out to play right it's just intergenerational kind of trauma inducing and traumatized people mm. you know I, I i love your your conversation there about uh classroom my wife's an elementary school teacher and she teaches grade fives right now and uh, she's been doing this for 25 years and her, her real passion is um, uh, kind of turning on the curiosity circuit in, in young children. And we know that the, the best way to the only way to turn on a curiosity circuit is to actually have a children in uh, a, a parasympathetic place where they feel safe, they feel nurtured, they feel included. And so the first month, she, all she does is learn. She's creating a nest. Right. She, you know, she's she's a very skilled, she's a therapist and counselor and works with kids, but she creates this evolved nest inside of a classroom where every child belongs. There's no bad kids. There's kids on the spectrum. There are kids with behavioral things. You have kids with with a you know EA. There's kids with this. There's doesn't matter. Every child belongs in her classroom. And so if you start with that premise that everyone belongs and that what we're going to do is we're going to do a lot of free play. We're going to do a lot of games. We're going to do a lot of singing. We're going to create circles. And, and, and what she's realized is that, you know, particularly when you're understanding like Dr. Stephen Porges's work on polyvagal theory, right? So polyvagal is this notion that we have a, a vagus nerve that runs particularly from our social engagement system, our eyes and our mouth and our sound of our voice. And that helps other nervous systems regulate. When you see the, the you know, the crow's feet and a real smile, when you see the smile on a cheek and when you hear undulating voice that feels soft and nurturing, what our entire nervous system begins to calm down. And so when you're in that safe, connected place, 
you can learn, you can become curious, you can, you, that right side of your brain gets triggered, right? And <clears throat> the idea of putting kids in rows, the idea of getting them to memorize things and get ready for a test. Uh, I mean, that is, she hates that. She is so anti-homework and anti-that. It's not, a, it's about creating uh, a safe nest for kids to thrive. And what happens, as you can imagine, is um, she becomes the favorite teacher that they've ever had. And kids that are in their 20s come back and say, Mrs. Peters, like, I've never felt so safe as when I was in grade four. And thank you. You know, you gave me this place where I could feel connected and love and safe. Well, that's the same for adults, right? We need this same kind of evolved nest place where we can feel safe and connected and loved and our curiosity can be turned on. And so getting into a small group of between under the group under nine, we found it's between six and nine. I've found in a small group with intentional trauma-informed models, you can really begin to re-nest someone and calm their nervous system down and they can begin to start developing that right side of their brain as well. So I just love your, your, I love your games that you play with young people, the children, because that's really, uh, that's this nervous system regulation is all, is all it is. It's, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. Yeah. We, so they learned the games and then we went and taught them to kindergartners and play with kindergartners and they were just thrilled that kindergartners are jumping around, you know, and college students are going, whoa, they're really into it. <laughs> so it encourages them to play more, right? Because you got to play to be alive, to be human, to be fully human. And I think that's one thing about this, these kinds of activities and having these circles and nestedness is that it keeps us in the cooperative mode. So I also talk about, um, I have a trine ethics, um, moral development theory. So we, we are born with survival systems. <clears throat> To keep us alive. So fear and rage and panic and all the things that get triggered. Uh, and those are there just for uh, acute situations when, you know, a tiger's chasing you or something. That's the intention. But what happens when you unnest kids and babies, you stress them out and distress them and disconnect them. Those things get enhanced. And the stuff that's supposed to be growing all this right brain connection and empathy and, and self-transcendence and, uh, you know, sense of connection always to everything. Uh, those things are underdeveloped. And so you've got these easily triggered um, survival systems that if you don't have the healing, um, <clears throat> you're going to use that to make your decisions, your actions, your flavored. So uh, our perception shift based on what kind of mindset we have. So our global kind of the way the brain works, if the stress response kicks in, the blood flow shifts away from your higher order thinking to your muscles. You can run away or fight or whatever. Uh, and <clears throat> if you're easily triggered, you're going to go into that state. Or if you were left to cry and never um, comforted as a baby, you learn to just shut, go down into the paralysis, <laughs> numbness, right? Uh, and in those states, you're not going to be very open hearted or open minded. You can't. The blood flow shifted away, right? And so these cooperative uh, games and and circles and nesting uh, practices are intended to keep you back in that other state, that social engagement state of uh, a social ethic, engagement ethic, I call it, and uh, enhancing that with communal imagination. So your ability to think about possibilities then is a communal uh, way of thinking, rather than if you're rooted in the survival systems, you're 
your abstract thinking is going to be about revenge and control and dominance and extermination, or, you know, just hiding away in the ivory tower, maybe <laughs> somewhere where you don't have to relate to anybody. Right. So our morality is rooted in how our neurobiology works. Do you do you do you have a, a community of, of, of people that kind of are like minded that you're developing that that you can kind of do this work with? Are you finding a spiritual community? Because um, that's hard to find. I know. And not face to face online. I find more like minded, like spirit minded people. Mm -hmm. uh, it is very hard. And I have friends in Minnesota, maybe. But around here, it's been more difficult. Yeah. And I think that's like, I really appreciate you even admitting that because I think that's, you know, your personal experience of saying, hey, I've got this worldview. I believe it. You know, I've shifted, but there's not a lot of like minded people that I can build community with. Right. And so you, you yourself, you, you know, you're the expert on this and yet you're still struggling to find real face-to-face -face community with people that share this way of being, you know, where are your monthly practices of ritual that you could drop into a community of 50 people that know your name and know, and are, you know, are there to journey with you and hold you in healing sacred ceremony. And, you know, and maybe four times a year where you, you know, we, people are dying for that and we don't have that. And so that to me is the, that's the that's the issue that I'm really focused on is I want to create like a pollinator approach, ways of dropping into communities, small groups that can begin to start thriving and growing. Uh, we call them gathering groups, but based on this worldview, based on an indigenous worldview of commonality, of connection, of resilience, <clears throat> because I think what you're experiencing in your own personal life, millions of people. Are, are finding that the worldview they have is bankrupt and it's not actually allowing them to thrive. You know, it's mm -hmm. not, a, it's not, you know, they're, they're at a place in life where like, this isn't working anymore. What, what else is out there? Right. And so you're giving a blueprint, but the actual, you know, brick and mortar of what that's going to look like is going to probably be the next generation of saying, you're right. We need to get back to this worldview, but what will the new, you know, non-indigenous, communities but based on an indigenous worldview what will they look like what will it what will it look like to raise children in a in a spiritual community that's not necessarily bound by a denomination right so what will that look like we don't know yet it's new and so i just really appreciate your honesty and saying peg i'm i'm facing this exact issue as a human right now in my world i've done this research but this doesn't exist really so I, uh, I think there's an opportunity in the psychedelic renaissance to see these plant medicines as an opportunity to help create new communities and help create people that are going, yes, I've had a, I had a, a trance-based learning moment. You know, my first high-dose psilocybin experience was with therapists and that experience on a five grams of psilocybin mushrooms allowed me to have a different experience of myself, of the divine, of the, of the spiritual world in ways that I could never put language to, but there was something deep that said, this feels like home. I'm connected to myself. I'm connected to a larger world and I'm a connected to a spiritual way of being. And that's, that's a feeling that's a, 
that's something you can never take away from me. Now I'm going, okay, how do I create communities that have these kinds of experiences at least once a year for people? This is essential for our healing on our planet. And without these kinds of communities and these kinds of rituals and these kinds of trance-based learnings, I think our species is actually going to not just decline, but I, I think we're, we're we, you know, there's going to be an end. And uh, it's so, yeah, there's, a, there's an urgency on our planet. Uh, and I don't think it's just by chance that the, these indigenous communities have offered up these plant medicines now in our time at this time in, you know, in history. They are part of the, the saving balm that I think indigenous communities can offer our planet. What are your thoughts on that, Darsha? Yeah, I, I like what you're saying. I, I think uh, what, I, what comforts me is that I'm, I may not have the human persons around me. Uh, regularly, but I have all the non-humans around. So I feel like my community is uh, the oak trees and the pine and the other, the animals around. And they, you know, I can contemplate and I can communicate with them and feel like I'm not alone and feel encouraged that way, right? So I think that's important to understand that wherever we are, there are living things with us. Maybe it's the plant in the window. You, if you need something green, and greenness is so important for our mental health. Uh, but everything is uh, part of Mother Earth. It all comes from Mother Earth. Lie on the Earth, Earth. You know, do some earthing as well as sunning, right? And lean against a tree and feel that energy, like the ancient tree you talked about. Uh, they're around, even if they're young. <laughs> they're still connected to the Mother Earth, who is the mother of us all. So. I find a comfort there. I think one of the challenges for uh, bringing people together now, besides COVID and those kinds of pandemic and monkeypox and everything else, uh, is that people are easily triggered. And so they have to somehow go through a, a, a healing practice almost before they can go to the circle right, to learn how to calm down with belly breathing, the vagus nerve stimulation, uh, things that are going to help them actually be able to be with others because we've become so isolated now with screens and such. So that would be the one thing that I would ask you then. How, how do you do that or what are you thinking about in terms of that, that issue? Yeah, I think... Uh... You know, you you bring up a really good good point in that people are isolated and there's all there's all sorts of you know still fear of you know communicable diseases and that pulls us away and yet in the midst of this pandemic we're realizing more than ever that we need connection that the the idea of isolation that we thought we needed to do for you know for this this period of time which is you know I I've, I've talked to old timers like oh yeah that's yeah we diseases come through our community and this is, we had to do X, Y, and Z, and that's just part of life. But I think you're, you're bringing up a, a larger point, which is to say, you know, what do we do in a time where people are really hesitant to get together? And yet this is the thing they need most. Right. And, um, we have, you know, we're, we're playing with this using the, the, the tools of technology. Like I'm not, you know, we're doing a podcast right now. We're, we're looking at each other over Zoom. And so I'm recognizing the power of this technology at this time that we can communicate to maybe millions of people over a conversation like this, right? A long form, unedited conversation is a really new digital tool we have. And I think Zoom 
which really came online during the pandemic, is actually a really powerful tool. A lot of people hate it, and I totally understand. We zoomed everything. But what we've been doing is we've been trying, we've been running a test for the last two years, and I've been working with people from the Vancouver Island University who helps kind of pioneer some resilience groups, Dr. Shannon Dames. And what they're founding is finding is that um, if a camera is close enough and people are in frame, well lit, and you can see eyes and, and face recognition, that you can get people into a small group online and you can regulate them using you know, breath work uh, and a, a type of trauma-informed group work that allows a titration of emotions to be able to come out in a safe space. People can feel seen and heard. And they've developed a model of resilience work that really after about four weeks begins to calm the nervous system down and people start really opening up, being vulnerable, open, feeling heard and shared. It's not therapy. It's a talking circle. It's an indigenous way of non-hierarchical learning together. Uh, and it's it's more of a sharing than anything else. And people that have gone through this process, we just finished our 14th group. Um, that's a, I've run 14 groups now over the last uh, few years. And each time we're learning more and more about how to regulate people. And, um, and I think this, uh, this model of coming together online, but then ending that with an in-person experience, right? So we 12 weeks were online together, 90 minutes a week, people with strangers you don't know in a small group with a shared intention of connection and, uh, uh, you know, a, a particular framework for how we run group. And then we all come together, sometimes for medicine journeys, sometimes just for a day retreat, but that group comes together for the first time and they meet in person. And so these people have only known each other online and now they come together for a retreat all around growth, resiliency, connection, vulnerability. It's a powerful model. And people are saying, I want, I want more of this, not less. And so we're finding that the tools of technology can be used for connection and growth, uh, but that it's it's still not a full replacement for the idea of physically coming together and being in the same room together. But I'm I we're finding ways to combine those, and we're getting amazing results. And results being, <clears throat> you know, what is good results? Results are someone coming out of a twelve week group, maybe doing a medicine session or not, saying, "Man, I, I'm falling in love with myself again." I'm realizing that I'm connected to myself, that I'm I'm re-engaging with my kids in new ways. I'm re-engaging in my marriage. I'm starting to slow my life down. I'm being outside more. And we're looking at these connectedness scores. There's a for those of you that are listening in the podcast and are um, you know, our psychedelic followers and you're you're up to date on the research, the the best research right now is uh is from Dr. Rosalind Watts out of Synthesis Retreat Center. Uh, her, she's from Imperial College, and she's tracking the the neurobiology of connection. And they are looking at how group work and particularly psychedelics can foster connection. And they've developed that we call they call the Watts Connectedness Scale for psychedelic therapy. And I hope if there's any therapists listening, go check it out because they're 19 questions that begin to uh, allow you as a therapist or as person leading to indicate whether the transformation that's happening will be longitudinal or not. Will this drop off or not? And they developed this scale all around 
points of connection. They're all around scores of connection and they're all aligned with your indigenous worldview. Like it's such a, it's like this, it's so connected. Um, it's, you know, these questions that they finally developed, they started with a hundred and they've pared it down to 19. I mean, they just literally read like your precepts. Right. Uh, and so this is research that's happening in psychedelic labs out in the UK. And, but what they're pointing to is your research and they don't even know it yet, but I can't wait for them, for us all to get in the same room. And what we're realizing about how to heal people from trauma is we need to connect them into uh, groups and we need to allow them to feel safe, held, connected. We need a nest. We need an evolved nest for adults and we can re-nest people. It takes about three, at least three months, maybe six, but we can re-nest people in communities with plant medicines and ceremonies. And to me, that is exciting because most psychologists and uh, physicians, my brother's a physician, and he says to me, Peg, I don't have anything to offer people anymore. I'm, they come into my office and they're depressed and they've been on the same antidepressant for nine years. They can barely go to work. They don't want to go outside and they just are just numbed. And he goes, I don't know what to offer. And I'm like, we're beginning to find tools. We're beginning to find you know opportunities and methods that you can begin to start offering. And so he's starting a clinic in our community with this intention. So these things are happening and it's so exciting. So I, uh, I get so excited talking to people like you because unbeknownst to you, your research is really helping form the foundation for how we develop this next level of what communities look like. And particularly those that are open to plant-based wisdom and uh, land-based knowledge, which has all been kept by our indigenous brothers and sisters. And so uh, again, we kind of come full circle back to that that uh, the land on which we're all from right and that's where the yeah, wisdom is that's right wow it's amazing wonderful work you're doing mm, thank yeah you. well darsha thank you so much for is there anything else for you that you like um i really want people to understand this this is kind of because what i got from your book was this is a heart cry and i i, I want to just Talk about your book for a sec, because I want readers to get it. And, I, and I'm going to recommend, I mean, do both, but I'm really going to recommend the audio book. Uh, it's brilliant. I'm so glad you guys took the effort to do that, because what you get is the author's voices. And it becomes an experience in itself. It moves from the printed page to, a, I feel like I'm in a conversation. And the way you guys divide up your 28 precepts. This is, I'm, a, I'm actually going to assign this as a month-long uh, spiritual journal for people that do our gathering groups because they can listen to, you know, five minutes of teaching and it's ancient, you know, texts from different indigenous communities. Then they listen to your discussion. There's application and it's a standalone. Each chapter can be a daily meditation. And so that's how I'm going to be assigning it because it really is a beautiful framework, that audiobook. Thank you for doing it that way. Uh, what were your, um, yeah, so there's my big push to go buy her book, go download it and start listening today. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit of what's your heart cry these days? Well, I think we've been talking about it, right? To bring back that sense of connection that everyone is here and we're here together. We're all part of the, the same earth and let's love one another let's uh enjoy one another let's find the goodness in one another and so when we meet someone let's find ways to enhance their well-being and that's what we see in in the pre-conquest co uh, societies communities 
they were all about enhancing and, and increasing enjoyment of the interpersonal relationship. And we kind of, uh, instead, uh, because we're more left brain and, and survival system oriented, kind of come to a situation and categorize people, right? That's left brain stuff, right? The right brain is all about, oh, how are we connected? What's beautiful here? What's What can be enhanced, right? That's just the the artistic way of being, the, the seeking of beauty, the creating of beauty. That's that's where I want people to be so they can actually enjoy being alive, being in this body, whatever body they have, whatever uh, experiences they have, have now probably honed some gifts that they can share with others. You know, that trauma, whatever it was, is a way to um, be more sensitized to things, to, you know, people who had the experiences you had, and maybe you have some gift to share. So I, I think um, we want to encourage people to be back in their bodies, to be here with one another, to be on the earth, to respect the earth, to honor the earth, to treat the uh, natural entities as partners, as uh, community members, um, and pay attention. So your attention really matters. That's how we, uh, it shapes who we are and our actions. Wherever you put your attention is what you're rehearsing and rehearsing for automatic behavior later. So it's important to be careful where you put your attention, right? If it's on violence or revenge or or demonizing the other, some group, that's going to uh, encourage you to use your survival systems and your vicious imagination. <laughs> Instead, as Paul, St. Paul said, focus on the beauty. Focus on what is wonderful. And that's what the natural world allows us to do, is there to help us remember to do. And children are there to help us remember to reconnect. They're all babies want to be with you, and little kids are ready to be in relationship all the time. So find those ways to be in relationship, whether it's the spider that you meet, say hello, encourage them, right? Wherever you are, you're in relationship. And remember that and appreciate it. Wow, that's beautiful, Darsha. Tell me um, again, again. Well, I, if this, if we need to, we can reshape this. But um, what about your own kinship? Tell me about your your family, the place that you find. Uh, where's what's home for you? What's uh, who's in your small circle of family? Uh, well, I'm in Indiana and with my husband and my okay. family. All my siblings are in Minnesota. <laughs> So I go, we go back there regularly and, and hang out with them. And I have a lot of friends there. Uh, and here, um, my husband and I try to, uh, we play every day. We try mm. to make each other belly laugh, you know, and and we forgive each other all the time. Who's the first mm. to forgive the, <laughs> each other each day and mm. and do a lot of huggling, right? So we didn't talk about touch. That's a mm. component of the nest. Maybe I should go through the nest. Yeah, fast. yeah, you know, go through the nest. I love the points yeah. in the nest. Let's let's get those down, yeah. Pat. So soothing perinatal experience, breastfeeding for several years on request, babies in charge, uh, affectionate touch, pretty constant in the first years of life, uh, and no, uh, no punishing touch, no corporal punishment that shifts the trajectory. And we have longitudinal data showing that it's harmful to the child and to the community. <clears throat> A welcoming social climate. So that means the community welcomes the child. Uh, and so classrooms, right, that are welcoming and have a positive uh, emphasis are really important for kids. Of course, classrooms, they'd rather not have a ch child in a classroom. They should be playing throughout childhood. They should be uh, self-directed learning, 
in the community and all, but you know, we have our system. Part of our problem is we have this system that's killing us. <laughs> so we have to get out of this system. But you know, meanwhile, <laughs> do the nesting wherever you can. Uh, then there's um, multiple adult caregivers, multiple mentors. So all of us need this, right? If we need the affection. We need the welcoming social environment. We need self-directed free play. That means not organized sports. That means you go out and you're wrestling and you're running and you're climbing and you're, you know, uh, imaginatively playing uh, with not with toys, just with whatever's there. Um, and you have multiple age playmates, so not the same age. Same age kids are going to be competitive rather than cooperative. Our natural pedagogy is to learn from the older and the elder. The older kids love to teach the younger. I mean, it's just very cooperative. There's no competitiveness. Then there's uh, responsive relationships. So meaning as a baby, you're kept calm and optimal arousal conditions. So you're always growing uh, positive stuff that's supposed to be growing, a good biochemistry, vagus nervous set properly, stress response set properly because it's not overstressed. And responsive relationships, we need those all throughout our life. And then nature immersion and nature connection, uh, we need that from the beginning. We've talked about that a bit. Um, and then routine or regular healing practices. And we talked about that. Yeah, those are a, a beautiful, a beautiful list. And I think there's so much, uh, again, the, the blueprint, <clears throat> when you align the evolved nest blueprint with the indigenous worldview kind of precepts, you begin to see how your overlap begin to be very natural, right? You're like, oh, this is, this is, this happens naturally in these kinship uh, you know, worldviews. When 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 communities uh, are are communal and 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 children are allowed to just be part, a welcome member of the family, uh, member of the kinship, uh, these things happen naturally. But it's our Western uh, individualized kind of competitive frameworks that have really destroyed parenting and child rearing. And now we are, you know, looking at the results of that, uh, that in essence, 50, 60, 100 years later in our evolved, quote, evolved civilizations in the West. And we're wondering why everyone's depressed and anxious and we're fearful and isolated and we're angry and uh, uh, we resort to uh, in-group, out-group uh, kind of frameworks so quickly, uh, which is all fear, right? It's all fear-based. Anything I don't understand, I, I have to other. Uh, and so you you see this particularly in you know whether it's civil wars all, all over the place or whether it's in in the United States where you have this the, the polarization of of in in group out group mentalities that are that are seeming to be spinning out of control right now right so all of this you are arguing is saying of course this is happening look at how we've raised our kids look at the society that we've been in of course we're in the place we're in so the way back is in essence to reclaim some of these things that we have lost. Uh, and, and I think you and Four Arrows have done a really good job of uh, countering the idea that this is, uh, um, you know, that the, the white colonizer is, is kind of misappropriating uh, these indigenous ways. And, you, you, know, you know, he's written an article on that actually from the University of British Columbia on uh, just this, the, the idea that these ideas aren't owned by anyone. They were just practiced by indigenous communities and we can look to them for wisdom. We don't have to say I'm indigenous now or I'm going to become indigenous. We're not. We're, caught, we're settlers. We're from other place. We didn't grow up in this land. However, these ideas are universal, uh, universally applied and they are truths of the universe that we can begin to look to and say, 
We need to go in this direction more. This is where health is. This is where thriving is. We Let's look at our indigenous brothers and sisters and learn from them. And let's get back into circles. Let's get back into places of, of touch and safety and connection. Uh, you, you, you know, you, you talked a lot about, you talked about concepts of mindfulness. It talked about being in the present moment, about how often, you know, I mean, part of the precept is this moving from the head to the heart right? One of your precepts is getting out of our head, getting out of our thinking brain where we analyze every single thing and we get back into our bodies. Our bodies have the truth and psychedelics. Uh, and that's another thing that's re being revealed by psychedelic research is that it's all somatic, that somatic therapy. And what we mean by that is our trauma is held in the tissues of our body. Bessel van der Kolk, the body keeps score, right? Others that have written on this idea of our bodies hold the traumas of our past and our bodies even hold, you know, uh, traumas from our ancestors. Well, we've looked at research on uh, Auschwitz survivors and you've looked at three to four generations of people that still have trauma responses based upon their ancestors. But the only way to reverse that is to adopt a new way of being in the world a new way of connecting and 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 a way of thinking about ourselves in relationship to spirit land others connection uh so there are so many overlaps here in your in your your research and your writing uh that uh, those that are interested in the healing potentials of psychedelics need to pay heed and get your material get your books so that they can understand what good is going to look like five ten years from now it cannot just be a rehash of a western take this pill and you're fixed leave my office model that will destroy us further uh, the only way is to create spiritual communities of connected individuals that use plant medicine in ritualistic ways so that you can fall back into a safe nested community. Without that, psychedelics will not help our planet. Full stop. That's my argument. And I, be, I challenge anyone to say, Peg, let's have a conversation about this. I think individual healing works. And I'm going to say it doesn't. We heal in connection. We've always had as, as human beings and we will, that will not change. And your research really shows how important that connection is in early stage and how we can maybe regain it now as adults. Uh, Darsha, this has been a beautiful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on Unveiled. You're welcome. Wonderful conversation. Thank you for all the work you're doing. It's just amazing. Mm. Well, yeah, well, let's let's stay in touch. And I would love to uh, I'm going to read. Please send me Four arrows contact. I would love to have him on, particularly talking about trans space learning. I think we need to learn a lot. I think our psychedelic therapists and guides need to learn from our indigenous people on how to do this kind of medicine work. Uh, and I think he would have a lot to say on that. So uh, please, I would love to have him on. It'd be amazing. I will. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot uh, for coming on today. This has been Unveiled Podcast. We with Dr. Narsha Narvaez. She is a professor at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, her most recent book, what I'm really recommending right now, is Restoring the Kinship Worldview. Indigenous Voices introduced 28 precepts for rebalancing life on planet Earth. Go get that. Download it. It's a perfect book to listen to on a drive or whatever. You're going to love it. So again, thanks for coming on today, Darsha. Have a great day. You're welcome. Thanks so much. You bet.